Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. My name is Julie Yuan Chen, Professor of Chinese Studies at University of Helsinki, Finland. Today, join me to talk about Cambridge University Press' new book, Recentering Pacific Asia, Regional China and World Order, is Professor Brentley Wormack. He's a professor of foreign affairs and senior fellow at the Miller Center at the University of Virginia. Can I say that actually Professor Wormack is my old friend. I met him years ago when I was a visiting scholar at the University of Virginia, and then we continued the friendship. So today, it's my honor to have you. Welcome, Brentley. Could you briefly introduce yourself and tell us a bit about the background of your new book? Well, thank you very much, Julie. And it's it's great to be seeing you virtually. Of course, seeing you in person is even better. It's not a very long book. It's only 250 pages, but it's a big think book. So uh, there's more ideas packed in it than one would think from the number of pages. The reason for the book is that ever since the global financial crisis of 2008, I've been thinking about what sort of post-hegemonic world order might emerge. The United States clearly is not in control of the global economy the way we assumed that it was in control before 2008. So I don't think this is a power transition. I don't think China is arising like the new, young, better boxer against the old boxer in the boxing ring, because basically China is not the same kind of power that the United States is. It's an asymmetric relationship, even though China's status as a risen power is certainly certainly established already. It's also not a Cold War because there aren't any natural camps the way there were between China, between the United States and Soviet Union. There's binary tensions, obviously, in the world today, just like there were in the Cold War. But they're not camps, and camps count. It's also, I wouldn't call it multipolar because multipolar suggests that there are a few important states and then the rest of the states are spectators or bit players. But I think one of the characteristics of the globalized world and the more prosperous and productive world that we have today is that all states have greater agency than ever before. Not just the industrial states, not just the big states, not just not just the uh, wealthy states. Nevertheless, power still counts. But if we're in a post-hegemonic world, we're in a world in which coercion is counterproductive. And if coercion is counterproductive, what is power? I would say that the main characteristic of power is influence. And if you want to see the attempt at power based on coercion and the loss of influence, I think Putin's invasion of Ukraine is the best example. Putin has used coercive power unsuccessfully, but from the moment of his invasion, he has lost power as influence in the world and in his region. Now, the U.S. is still the most globally influential country, but China has become the most influential country in Pacific Asia. And therefore, I say China has recentered Pacific Asia. In your book, you have a very interesting title, Pacific Asia. I would like you to elaborate a bit on that because I think most of us are still a bit outdated, maybe not as advanced as you are. <laughs> we use uh, Asia Pacific, or nowadays there is a hot term called Indo Pacific. Why do you use <laughs> Pacific Asia? 
Good question. No one should introduce a new term without a good reason for it. And I hope I have a good reason, but you can be the judge of that. What I mean by Pacific Asia is Northeast Asia, Greater China, which is mainland China, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Macau, and Southeast Asia all together. Now, why would I think it would be worthwhile to stick these countries all together as a regional unit rather than treating them as three separate units? Because GDP of the region, of this Pacific Asia region, is now larger than the GDP of the EU plus the United States. So there's no question that if you put these countries together, they are an economic powerhouse. And not only that, they're a powerhouse that is a dynamic powerhouse in the global economy. But is it a region? To me, it seems to me that I, when you use the term region, you're not just simply pointing at some cluster on the map. It has to have some internal cohesion. But I've looked at the internal trade of the Pacific Asia region and actually internal trade in the Pacific Asia region is a greater percentage of Pacific Asia's total trade than internal trade in Europe or internal trade in North America. So we look at this entire region. If we look at the region all the way from South Korea, Japan, down to Indonesia as a unit that trades with itself, invests in itself, and also deals with the rest of the world. It's an open region. It's not a closed region. But I think that it's justified to look at what I'm calling Pacific Asia as a region. But there's other terms we could use. People have talked about things like this before, and they've used the term Asia Pacific. Why not Asia Pacific? The main reason is that, especially in talking to an American audience, uh, Asia Pacific means us plus East Asia, you know, us plus uh, the rest of Asia. And if you look at APEC, you know, it's, it's broader than just the Asia side of the Pacific. So I want to emphasize Pacific Asia as a region, an open region, but having the cohesion, identity, and importance of a region. Well, why not use the term East Asia? If we were sitting in Bangkok, as, as you were, Julie, not too long ago, then in using East Asia for all that I'm talking about now as Pacific Asia would be very common. And if you look at the East Asia Summit run by ASEAN, uh, and that was definitely including all the countries and no more than these countries. In as the East Asia countries. Well, the problem with that is, let's go back to the United States and Europe. When we use the term East Asia in Europe, or use the term East Asia in the United States, it often just refers to China, Japan, Korea. And so I want to make sure that we're not simply talking about that. So I asked the East Asians to adjust to a term that is more that is likely to be a better fit for the rest of the world. Now, why not Indo-Pacific? The latest new term, what do I think is wrong with that? Well, first of all, it, what is the, the to me, the, the best utility of Asia, of the Indo-Pacific term is that it basically says the rest of Asia besides China is important. So if Europe has an Indo-Pacific policy, that means it doesn't just have a China policy. It has to deal with Southeast Asia, Northeast Asia, Greater China, including Taiwan, that deal with India, deal with Pakistan. There's a world out there that's bigger than China. I think that's very important because otherwise we tend to get into this two boxers in the world ring of power mentality. But the thing about Indo-Pacific as all the countries except China or all the countries 
in problematic relationships with China is it clearly China is the center point of attention even for the Indo-Pacific. It's just China as excluded center rather than as included center. And the thing is, the way the regional economies work, it is an included center in uh, Pacific Asia. And if that's not noted, recognized, and sort of digested into thinking about the Indo-Pacific, then Indo-Pacific is just uh, is a confusing term. Now we go back to actually to the first question. I think you were talking about centrality, China's centrality in uh, Pacific Asia. I remember in your book, which I happen to already read before it's published, uh, you have uh, compared the China's traditional centrality and the new centrality. Could you elaborate on that? Okay, that's a very good question, too, because China's centrality, both then in pre-modern times and now, is a much disputed concept. How can I say that traditional China was central, given the conquest dynasties, given the invasion, occupation, and remaking of China by the Mongols and the Yuan dynasty, and then by the Manchus and the Qing dynasty. I, what's the centrality of China? And how can we say that China is central to Pacific Asia today in this post-2008 world if the world's post-hegemonic? Does China have to be in control in order to be central, to be considered central? And my answer to that question is no. I would define centrality as being at the center of attention, not being at the center of power. They're not ex exclusive. Sometimes China was the biggest power in the region. Look at the Ming Dynasty to a great extent, or the Tang Dynasty. But that's not the key feature. How can I say that China's center of attention in the pre-modern era? Because China's presence and active presence in the middle of East Asia, China's population, which is always greater than half of the population of, of Pacific Asia, and its production, especially in the types of goods that were traded back then, the porcelain, silk, tea, and these types of goods, China was a center of production. So these three things, presence, population, and production. These are the key to China's, to the resilience of China's centrality in pre-modern times. Why? It's, it, it, yes, China was conquered by the Mongols, but why did the Mongols want to conquer China? And then why did China reemerge? Presence, population, production. These things helped determine the resilience of China as a traditional power. What happened at the Opium Wars and Western colonization in Southeast Asia and uh, the Meiji Restoration in Japan? What certainly China was not the center of attention during the modern era, during the, the century of humiliation in Chinese terms. What happened to presence, population, and production? during the modern period. Well, presence became irrelevant because China and the rest of East Pacific Asia became parts of a larger world, became parts of a westernized, globalized world. And so the colonies were fractured into little servants of their mother countries or their stepmother countries in Europe, Europe became the center for Pacific Asia, Europe and then the United States. And so China's center of attention in Asia, Asia was not its own center. Asia was decentered by the Western modernization. And so that was out. Okay, what about population? Well, China's population was predominantly rural. It didn't have much capital. And so it, that 
size of China's population went from being a possible source for a traditional army to being a drag on its possibilities of modernization. And then for production, China's production of the old style was artisanal production. It couldn't hold a candle to industrial production. And so it lost its role as proud producer of silks and teas. India became the primary producer of global tea. And the rest of the world found not only that they could make silk, but that they could make rayon and nylon and other goods that could compete with silk. So China really lost out on its three Ps during this period. What happened after 2008? Well, since then, China's presence as a market has been reestablished. It's the size of its population because that population is now made more cohesive with better transportation and coordination. That population has become more important as a population center for Pacific Asia. And for production, China has mastered the arts of industrial production. And so those three Ps are transformed from the earlier period. But they're back. What does that mean for China's role in the region? We live in a post-hegemonic world, and so it has a center of attention. But whether the center of economic attention produces any political cohesion, that is China's challenge. And so far, it's a one step forward, two steps back type of relationship that China has. In the book, you mentioned that the major tax for the United States is not to counter China's centrality but rather to understand China and its region. Could you elaborate on this? The United States has a global centrality of its own. If you think of the world economy, whether you're in Argentina, the United States, Finland, Bangladesh, you first of all, you want to know what the world economy is doing, and the United States is still, still central to that economy, even though a diminishing proportion of the economy. So the U.S. has a global centrality of its own, and it certainly has put pressure on China's regional centrality, the attentiveness and cohesiveness of the region to China's economic presence. And Pacific Asian countries are caught in this tension between regional and global centers. But what can either do to improve their situation? What can either do to secure their situation? They can't improve their relative situation to the other by simply pressuring China's neighbors or pressuring the rest of the world. That is old style. That is hegemonic style use of power. Power has to be influence. If U.S. or China puts pressure on Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, Vietnam, etc., then it becomes counterproductive. And China can isolate itself by putting pressure on its neighbors. It can isolate itself by saying my way or the highway to its neighbors. And the U.S. can cause a decline in its global and regional influence. But I don't think that either can force Pacific Asia into submission. And if they cannot force Pacific Asia into submission, then they have to entice Pacific Asia to, to see its own good, a connection to global or regional centers of attention. And the way that those global and regional centers of attention can succeed in this, actually, the way they could best succeed in this is working together, not working as an either-or choice. I noticed your book has a very unique way of structuring it, that you have those chapters in which you laid out your own ideas and arguments, but then you have commentaries in between. Why is this so? 
that was the first question that Cambridge University Press asked me too. You know, what is this book? You know, what is it? Is this an anthology or, uh, you know, what's the relationship between you and, and your chapters and these commentators? And my answer to that is that this is a big think book, not because I know the big answers, but because I raise the big questions. And the commentators have their own approaches to these big questions. And I hope that the readers will have their own approach to the big questions. And so I think the commentators give their own opinions on these questions, opens up a field of thinking beyond simply whether I'm right or wrong. You know, it opens up a question of whether Wang Gungwu, famous historian in Singapore, is right about traditional China or wrong, and, and how his views differ from mine. How uh, Wu Yixian in Taiwan differs, a famous academician in Taiwan differs in his view of the role of power in centrality. He much more emphasizes the role of power than I do. What is this the nature of the globalized world that we're in, how important are relationships, how important is a sort of horizontal relationships versus the vertical relationships of coercion. And Qin Yaqing, one of China's top international relations theorists, addresses that in his commentary. And then finally, and discussing the whole question of the rise of Pacific Asia as an important region and the global significance of the rise of Pacific Asia, not just China. China is a central element, but not just China. This sort of transformation of the world order, not just a power transition, but an order transition. And this is a theme that has been important in Evelyn Goh's work. And uh, and she does a wonderful job commenting on this. I think that the commentaries add not contradictory opinions, but different opinions and different answers and different reflections on these questions that the book tries to raise. I know lately you have visited Tsinghua University in China. So this is the first visit, I guess, post-pandemic. How was the experience? <laughs> it was just barely post-pandemic. I got there at the dawn of the post-COVID era. It was wonderful. People were still wearing masks. Everybody had gotten sick in December and January, and I arrived in February. So uh, my timing could not have been better. It was so wonderful to be back in China after three years of being away because people-to-people -people relationships, that sort of thick context that you get when you're together with other people, especially people that you already know, reacquaint with uh, people after the, the COVID experience. These things, to me, are invaluable preserve to, in a confidence of a grasp of a general situation. Because basically, if you view research as just looking for the answers to your own questions, think of the th questions you could have answered, you could have asked if you had known the situation in greater detail, if you had actually been in the situation without before your questions. To a great extent, seeing research as answering your existing questions limits your ability to address the kind of big picture questions that I'm addressing in my book. And it was fantastic to be in China talking about these big questions. And it was also very hard that the my emphasis on regionalism and my emphasis on, on open regionalism was very welcome in China. So I think that uh, the Chinese, just like Americans tend to see China and only China as the competitor, and Chinese tend to look at the global picture too and neglect or at least be distracted away from the regional picture. My point that 
the foundations of China's global presence is its regional presence, was well-received. Big thinking is not simply American big thinking or European big thinking, but also Chinese big thinking and also Pacific Asian big thinking. I look forward to having discussions about the book in Southeast Asia, Japan, South Korea, and Taiwan. I did go to Taiwan. Uh, when will this book officially be published? <laughs> <laughs> officially, if you look at the Cambridge University Press website, which I recommend because there's some nice reviews of the book there, it'll be published in September. But I've been told that they could have it out as soon as the end of July. Uh, the proofs are already finalized, and so it's just a question of production now. And especially for electronic production, that doesn't take very much. I'd say look for it in August. Maybe I should repeat the title of this book. So it's called, <laughs> thank you, thank it's called you. It's Recentering Pacific <laughs> Asia, Regional China and World Order, and it will be published by Cambridge University Press, possibly already in the summer. Looking forward to the real publication of the book. Thank you, Brantley, for sharing your insights with us. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast with me, Julie Chen, and Brantley Womack from University of Virginia. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.